Good morning, Sun Valley Church. Thank you for joining us again via video for our worship service together. I thank the Lord that he has allowed us this uh, ability to uh, minister to one another, to encourage one another in the Lord through the scriptures, uh, through our service together. I pray that this uh, circumstance, the situation we're in will end soon and we have great hopes that it will. But uh, until then, we're thankful, we're rejoicing that we have the opportunity to uh, minister to each other's needs via video. When you are in partnership in business, uh, there are certain expectations of every partner. Uh, each partner must participate in some way to add their value to the business. Uh, we've been learning from the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians all that's involved in being a joyful gospel partner for the cause of Christ. Paul told the Philippians what kind of people they needed to be and, and the things they needed to do in order to be joyful gospel partners. And since Paul's doctrine is exceedingly practical all over the New Testament, he was uh, going to share with his Philippian readers the things, the various things in life that could interrupt that, that joy that, that comes with partnering with Christ in the gospel. Throughout the book, you see different places where Paul identifies things that would steal or rob or interrupt the joy that God intends for us as people. Remember that Paul gave examples of people who were outstanding gospel partners, joyful gospel partners. He gave those examples so we would imitate them. He gave the example of Timothy, who was a joyful gospel partner in that he uh, considered the interests of the Philippians more important than his own interests, just like Jesus Christ. And then we saw the example of Epaphroditus, who joyfully partnered with Paul by demonstrating his gospel partnership by sacrificing his time and his energy to accomplish a task that was necessary, as mundane as it was. He risked all for the cause of Christ, and both of these men joining Paul in what it looks like to be a joy-filled gospel partner. I want you to see three more things from verses 1 through 3 of Philippians chapter 3 about gospel partnership. First of all, we're going to see that gospel partners must be joyful. Secondly, they must beware. And thirdly, they must be self-aware. So gospel partners must have a joyful outlook. We must beware of false doctrine. And we must know who we are in Christ, be self-aware. So let's take the first point. I hope you'll print off the outline that's on the weekly liturgies on our website. The first point you'll see there is that gospel partners is a command to be joyful. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That's a command. So Paul is saying, gospel partners, be joyful. The word finally there that's used in verse 1 is a word that begins the second half of the book of Philippians. It's been said that when you hear a preacher say finally, you know you're about halfway through the sermon. But Paul here in, in verse 1 of chapter 3 was really saying more, something more like, so then. So then, considering what I've already written you, I want you to listen to the rest of what I'm going to say. That's more likely what Paul was thinking. So then, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. He says, you're going to hear me say things that I've already said, things that will be repetition, but these things are really important. Paul knew that repetition is the mother of skill, and so he wasn't afraid to repeat important things. 
which he would do right here. The repetition that I think Paul has in mind is the command to rejoice. There's different opinions on what commentators think Paul meant, but I believe since the theme of this book is rejoicing as gospel partners, I think Paul's about ready to repeat that command again. Rejoice, he said. So how is rejoicing safe? Paul says it's, it's safe for you or a safeguard for you. How will rejoicing keep you safe? And safe from what? Well, if, if, you're, if you're going to rejoice in your circumstances, knowing that God has placed you where you are for his good and for, for rather your good and his glory, you won't be nearly as tempted to complain about your circumstances. You won't be jealous of someone else's blessings if you're rejoicing in your own. Rejoicing actually protects the Christian from the sin of complaining and the church from the sin of disunity. Let me say that again. Rejoicing actually protects the Christian from the sin of complaining and the church from the sin of disunity. Is it possible that rejoicing in all things is a remedy to disunity in the church? I think so. Paul indicates at the beginning of chapter 2 that the remedy for disunity is humility. But also now here, a genuine attitude of rejoicing will help in the battle against disunity and complaining about anything. These two, these two sins, rather, go hand in hand, complaining and disunity. Have you ever noticed that? When people complain, it causes disunity in relationships. Do you know where disunity begins in churches? 100% of the time, it begins in the arena of complaint. Earlier, Paul wrote that our circumstances should have no effect on our joy. You remember that Paul was in prison. You remember that he was facing execution. You remember that the, the Philippians were experiencing persecution. And all along, Paul said, rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in all of these things. The context of each command to rejoice in the book of Philippians is given in the midst of adverse conditions. Those things that would normally be considered easy to rob someone's joy. Going to prison, being in prison, facing execution, being in persecution, all things that could interrupt our joy. But Paul says there in each time, rejoice. He told them to rejoice particularly because God is especially at work in difficult circumstances to bring about his good purposes in our lives. You remember back in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure and your good pleasure. Being joyful is a distinguishing mark of gospel partners. It should be distinguishing mark of every believer. James Montgomery Boyce said, joy is a supernatural delight in God and his goodness. Joy is a supernatural delight in God and his goodness. Of course, it's closely related, but it's different from happiness. Happiness is, the, is our translation of the Latin word fortuna. And it is closely related to the idea of chance, fortune. So if things happen to work out in a favorable, fortunate way, we say we're happy. On the other hand, if they do not work out in a favorable, fortunate way, we are unhappy. Happiness is that feeling of exhilaration associated with favorable events. But joy persists in the face of weakness, of pain, of suffering, even of death for the Christian, the joyful gospel partner. 
Joy produces a deep confidence in the future that's based on trust in God's purpose and God's power. That's what joy is. We can actually choose to be joyful by trusting God's purpose, God's character in our circumstances. Happiness, on the other hand, is highly dependent on favorable circumstances. But joy is not. Joy is an inner quality of delight in God, a trust in God, complete confidence in God's goodness and care of us. Biblical joy is unrelated to circumstances, but is most evident when circumstances are not favorable. That's when you really discover whether or not you have authentic Christian God-centered joy. Many times, uh, as we allow our focus to drift off of Christ and onto ourselves and start to feel sorry about for ourselves because of our difficult circumstances, we can lose our joy right along with our happiness. This is unfortunate. Has that happened to you, Christian friend? Have you lost the joy of God that he intends us to have? If that's the case, I want you to listen closely today because our passage deals particularly with this important issue. So what does God's word say about joy? I think there are three steps that God's word would encourage us to take to possess gospel-centered joy. Three steps to possessing gospel joy. The first step, if you haven't already done so, is to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. There's no supernatural joy outside of a supernatural Savior. You can have no real confidence in your current or future circumstances if your joy is dependent on favorable circumstances. Part of embracing Christ Jesus is the admission that he is Lord. He is Lord over everything and orchestrates all things for his purposes and for his glory and for our good. Do you believe that? Have you embraced Jesus as Lord? Many people think that they are Christians for a host of reasons, but have never really embraced Jesus as Lord. They have never really denied themselves and taken up their cross and followed Jesus. They're fair-weather Christians. These are people who will call themselves Christians and do Christian things until their circumstances turn sour. Then they reveal the true condition of their unregenerate heart through bitterness, anger, selfishness, discontentedness, complaining, etc. Fair-weather Christians are not Christians as much as they would claim otherwise. So step one is to embrace Jesus as the Lord of your life. He is Lord, whether or not you embrace him as such, but to embrace him as Lord of your life is the first step towards joy. Before you humble yourself and turn from your sin and run to Jesus, you are like everybody else in the world, born selfish. Your life is about you, not about God, not about your neighbor, not even about your friends. It's about you. When God begins to draw you and be, you begin to realize the depth of your selfishness, of your pride, of your rebellion, really, against God, you begin to realize that all of your efforts at self-justification are actually signs of a sinful heart. This is something that we must turn from if we're going to experience joy. So you have to lay these things aside. You have to count them as laws, as Paul did in chapter 3 of Philippians. You have to come to the cross to receive God's righteousness and his forgiveness in Christ Jesus. You exchange your old identity for your new one. You say to God something like this. I admit that everything I do falls short of your standard. It's no good. 
I lay it aside. I, I don't deserve anything from you, God. But I come empty-handed to receive what you have promised to give those who come to Jesus Christ by faith. I am here. I come to receive Christ's righteousness by which I will be counted righteous before you. I come to receive the Holy Spirit by whom and through whom I'll have the power to live the Christian life. That's the kind of attitude, the words that, that come from a heart that's been regenerated. If you've done that, you've taken the first step to experiencing joy that characterizes gospel partner Christians. The second step is this. You must pursue righteousness, peace, and joy. This means the pursuit of holiness and the practice of trusting God. It's, it's something the Bible calls sanctification, becoming Christ-like. It's the pursuit of righteousness, peace, and joy. Romans 14, 7, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a pursuit of those things. It's a pursuit of holiness, a pursuit of God, really. Friends, if you desire joy but refuse to obey Jesus, the giver of joy, then what would you expect? If you have a job but refuse to do what your boss expects, do you think that you're going to receive bonuses, pay raises, and extra benefit? You may not even keep your job. So if you claim to be a Christian but refuse to obey Jesus, do you expect him to bless you with the great benefit of joy? It's highly unlikely. So the second step is to pursue holiness, to pursue God, really. The third step to becoming a joyful gospel partner is to experience a life of continuous joy by saturating your mind with sound doctrine. Is that an identifying mark of your life, that you're filling your mind with sound doctrine? Maybe you don't believe that the depth of your joy is directly related to your grasp of sound doctrine. Let me try to convince you otherwise. In Psalm 19, verse 8, the psalmist says this, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So you see how the psalmist connects the word of the Lord and joy? In Psalm 119, verse 14, the psalmist says, I rejoice in following your statues as, as one rejoices in great riches. You see the connection? And then in Jesus' words in John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, now listen, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The connection between sound doctrine and joy is all over scripture. Joy and knowledge of God and his word go hand in hand. If you lack joy, it may be because you haven't taken the first two steps and maybe you, you haven't embraced Jesus as Lord or maybe you're not pursuing God and holiness, but it may be also because you're neglecting God's word. You should fill your mind with God's word like a stream would fill a reservoir. It just keeps pouring in day after day, filling it up higher and higher. That is what sound doctrine should be doing in the life and mind and heart of every joyful Christian. So no matter how long you live, you'll never completely exhaust the depths of Scripture. Think of any theologian that you would respect. They have not exhausted the depths of Scripture. Our joy 
is dependent on a vibrant relationship with God that comes from our understanding and grasp of sound doctrine. If this is so, I think it's obvious that we must pursue and prioritize our pursuit of God in the scriptures. We must get to know him more and more. We must understand the importance of consistent, sustained study of the revelation of God himself in scripture. If you have the joy that Paul is commanding us to have, it will dramatically affect everything in your life. Rejoice in the Lord, Paul says in verse 1 not in your circumstances. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your selfish ambition. Rejoice in the Lord, not in good health. Rejoice in the Lord, not in the growth of your 401k and social media. Rejoice in the Lord, not in your vocation, your family, your friends, your money, your cars, your, cars, your homes. Rejoice in the Lord. Sun Valley Church, Gospel Partners, be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. That's the first thing we see here in verse 1 of chapter 3. Secondly, from verse 2, our second point, gospel partners, beware. Don't just be joyful, but beware. Look at verse 2. Look out for those dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Beware, Paul said. Since Paul knew that the only effective gospel partner is a joyful one, he warns his readers about another thing that will rob them of joy. False teachers of legalism. False teachers of legalism rob God's people of their joy. And Paul wants the Philippians and the Holy Spirit wants you and me to avoid those type of things like the plague. Paul's warning against false teachers demonstrates that Christians must be discerning people. Are you a discerning Christian? Unfortunately, discernment isn't given at the point of regeneration. Don't you wish it was? The minute you come to Christ, you're all of a sudden discerning like the most seasoned theologian. Wouldn't that be nice? But that's not how it is. We grow into discerning people, just like sanctification based on our intake of God's word and understanding and grasp of sound doctrine. The more you grow in faith, the more your powers of discernment grow. If you lack discernment, you lack spiritual maturity. Many times you can determine the depth of a church's teaching by the ability of its members to be discerning. Sun Valley Church, I pray that you're a discerning church. The word safe in verse one, look back at verse one. Paul's gonna say the same things, to be joyful because it's safe for you. That word safe means to not trip, not stumble, not be overthrown. This is what pastors and teachers are supposed to be doing in churches. They're supposed to be keeping their people from being tripped up, from being deceived, to, from being overthrown. Paul uses three terms to, to describe false teachers, those who oppose gospel-centered thinking, those who would rob us of the gospel partner joy that this book is about. The first name that he uses is dogs. Paul was thinking figuratively, of course, here, but he was thinking about the wild dogs that were common in his day. They were not domestic animals that we love. These dogs were wild, many times diseased scavengers that were aggressive and dangerous. When I was growing up in Ecuador, wild dogs were common and they would travel in packs. And they would harm you if you let them, if you weren't prepared. I remember 
hardly ever going anywhere without a pocket full of rocks to keep wild dogs at bay. Many people walked around the streets of Quito, where I grew up, with a dog whip. It was a long shank with a leather whip on the end of it to keep wild dogs at bay. Paul called these false teachers, those who would rob us of joy because of their legalistic teaching, he called them dogs. When this term is used to describe people in the Bible, it's always used in a derogatory way. Jews commonly referred to Gentiles as Gentile dogs. But Paul here called Jewish false teachers dogs. Paul's tone is obviously harsh because of the seriousness that false teachers are. They're dangerous to Christians, and we need to be warned about them. In today's Christian world, of course, being this blunt is not viewed in, in a good way. It's called being spirited, right, if we hear this kind of thing. And in case you feel that Paul is going too far by calling names and assigning uh, titles of dogs to people, actual people, I want you to consider what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15. He, he called false teachers ravenous wolves. That's not much lighter, is it? I don't think so. In 1 Timothy 4.1, Paul calls false teaching doctrines of demons. This is serious stuff. The consequences of false teaching are so severe that Jesus and Paul go to great lengths to warn people about them. And then Paul says there's evil workers. It's the same group of people. They're dogs and evil workers. Anyone who thinks that, that their religious ritual in Paul today, it was one thing, but in our day, it's things like church attendance, service, giving, etc., ritual. If anybody thinks that religious ritual can earn good standing with God, they are deceived, Paul is saying. They are evil workers, not just because they believe this to be the case, but more importantly, because they promote it. In Paul's life, we see him go from an evil worker, remember he called himself a Pharisee, uh, here in chapter 3 of Philippians, he went from an evil worker to a God-dependent worker of righteousness. Things that used to matter to Paul, as outlined in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3, no longer mattered to Paul. In fact, after conversion, he, he called them useless, dung. What's interesting to understand is that the evil work that Paul's referring to is any good work done with the intention of winning God's favor. Think about that. That's what makes it an evil work. Trying to do something to make God be impressed with you is an evil work. Only believers who live by and are controlled by the Holy Spirit can do genuinely God-honoring, God-glorifying good works. Unbelievers can do good things, no doubt, but, but if you were to examine their heart, to uncover their motives, I think what we would discover would be selfish ambition, would be pride underlying all their attempts of philanthropy. Many false teachers aren't intentionally trying to harm people. They're actually trying to earn God's favor, trying to impress God, trying to earn their salvation. But at the bottom of all this false teaching, of all this ritual observation, at the bottom is a rebellion against the grace of God offered to them in Jesus Christ. They refuse that free offer of grace and say, no, I want to do it my way. 
And then Paul calls the same group of people flesh mutilators. You see that in verse 2? Look out for the dogs, look out for the evil evildoers, look out to those who mutilate the flesh. When Paul used this term, he removed all doubt about who he was talking about. He was talking about the Judaizers, legalists, people who denied the gospel of grace by teaching that circumcision was required to be accepted by God, and then diligently following all Old Testament mosaic regulations and law. You see, the Jews proudly referred to themselves as the circumcision. The word mutilation, though, is a closely related word in the Greek. Mutilation and circumcision are very, very similar. And those two words, Paul was using a play on words to contrast false teachers with true believers. Circumcision was intended by God to set apart his people to himself. But it was also intended to be a picture of the needed work of grace in the heart. Paul speaks of true circumcision in Romans 2, do you remember? Referring to those who have had a work of grace done on their hearts by God. The true circumcision. Circumcision became such an idol to the Jewish people that it actually interfered with the relationship with God instead of affirming it. How sad is that? Ritual has never impressed God, and yet it has always found a way into the heart of man, into the mind of man, thinking that through ritual we can impress God somehow. We think that if we go through some ceremony, uh, we, we can be acceptable to God. But the gospel teaches the opposite. We come empty-handed to God, as I referred to earlier. We come acknowledging our need, desperate for God and God alone. It was a false and superficial circumcision that Paul was referring to. Interestingly, the Greek word for mutilation was used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, to describe the false prophets as they were dancing, screaming, carrying on, and cutting their bodies uh, to the altar of Baal in 1 Corinthians, or rather 1 Kings 18, verse 28. Elijah was confronting them, and they were carrying on like crazy people, cutting themselves, mutilating their flesh, really. That's the word that Paul used here in verse 2, mutilators of the flesh. Paul was saying that circumcision that the Judaizers were so proud of was actually no better than the physical mutilation of the flesh by the prophets of Baal. What a condemnation! Paul never fooled around with false teachers. Listen to what he said in Galatians 5, chapter 12, chapter 5, verse 12, rather. I wish those who unsettle you, that is, Judaizers, false teachers, would emasculate themselves. <laughs> to put this in the vernacular, Paul wrote, I wish they would castrate themselves. Paul's point is that if the physical ceremonial act of circumcision was pleasing to God, as they claimed, why not go all the way and be super pleasing to God? True circumcision is a heart issue, Paul said. True circumcision is a heart issue, God says. It's an inward spiritual cutting that cleanses the heart from sin, and it's done by God himself. Point number one, gospel partners, be joyful. Point number two, gospel partners, beware. Point number three, gospel partners, be self-aware. 
This is seen in verse 3. These are marks of a true gospel partners. These, what Paul is saying here, know who you are. Be self-aware. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by God or the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's four things there I want you to see. One of the foundation stones of gospel partner joy is a clear understanding of our position in Christ. Do you know who you are in Christ, brother and sister? Do you understand who you are in Jesus Christ? Paul's going to lay out four simple points here. Listen, the first is this. Gospel partners are authentic in their relationship with God. Our hearts have actually truly been affected. We are the true circumcision. Our hearts have been touched by God himself. This produces a genuine love for God. In God, we find our joy and delight. Do you delight in God? If so, it's a sign that your heart has been touched by God. We are the circumcision. We know Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see authentic worship of God. We, we worship by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see that second phrase there in verse 3? Authentic worship of God. The true circumcision are those who worship by the Spirit of God. True believers overflow with worship from the heart. This worship is an overflow because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in us says, Abba, Father. Our worship is not based on or dependent on anything external or any kind of a ritual. It's, it's based on the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. It is a response to his presence. We worship by the Spirit of God. This was Jesus' point to the woman at the well in John 4, you remember. She was convinced that worship required the right location. You had to be in the right spot. You had to be in the sanctuary. But Jesus corrected that and told her that true worship was an overflow of an affected heart. We don't need lights. We don't need smoke. We don't need entertainment on Sunday mornings. What we need is the Holy Spirit of God in our presence. Jesus also taught this woman in John 4 that true worship was based on the scriptures, not on the whims of the worshiper. He said worshipers worship in spirit and truth, referring to scripture. That's the definition of and the essence of true worship. The Holy Spirit takes the word of God and draws us into worship. That's why the, the preaching of the word is so critically important to every true worship service. If there is no preaching of the word of God, there is no true worship service. The Father is gathering worshipers. In worship, we fulfill the purpose for which we were made. It is God that draws us, God the Holy Spirit that initiates worship in our hearts and minds through the word. The third thing we see there is authentic boasting in Christ Jesus. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus or boast in Christ Jesus. Authentic boasting in Christ has the idea of Christ being the most important part of us. What we are most proud of is Jesus Christ and our relationship to him. Many of us, of course, are proud of our kids, of our jobs, our careers. Boasting, this idea of boasting here, though, carries the idea of giving credit to Jesus for everything in your life. We boast in Jesus, not in ourselves. 
That's what authentic Christians do. That's what joyful gospel partners do is we rejoice in Christ Jesus. We, we boast in him. We give credit to Jesus for all that he has done for us. We have an overflowing spirit of thanksgiving for everything that we are experiencing. Boasting in Jesus Christ is the opposite of boasting in the flesh. Look at the fourth identifying mark of a gospel, joyful gospel partner. He says, and put no confidence in the flesh. I'm calling this authentic humility. We put no confidence in the flesh. We don't think that we have some special role in the matter. We don't believe this because of us and our smarts and our good decisions that cause us to be right with God. No, this is a mark of a true worshiper. It's a confident trust in God, not in our flesh. Our hope isn't in being able to give a lot, attend regularly, or serve perfectly. That's not where we put our hope in, no. Our confidence is in God, not the flesh. Putting confidence in the flesh is putting one's confidence in our human ability. I'm certainly thankful that that's not the case. There's no value in that. There's no benefit in putting our confidence in our flesh because our flesh, we can't do anything. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So we don't put our confidence in the flesh, in human ability. Genuine believers understand this. Joyful gospel partners understand that their salvation is of the Lord. Their sanctification is also dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And their final estate is dependent upon God. We don't put our confidence in the flesh. Our fallen, unredeemed flesh cannot please God. The truly saved individual walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. Friends, do you see what Paul is doing here in these three verses? He's telling gospel partners, joyful gospel partners, to be joyful, to rejoice in every circumstance for all reasons. Be aware of false doctrine that may trip you up. Be self-aware of who you are in Christ. Son Valley Church, is this you? Are you rejoicing in all things in your life? Are you aware of the things that would trip you up doctrinally? And thirdly, are you self-aware of who you are in Christ? Oh, this is my prayer. In fact, join me in prayer right now that God would do this for us. Holy Father, we thank you that these things are true about joy-filled gospel partners. I desire, Father, your, your word clearly points us to this, that we would be joyful people, that our circumstances would not shake the foundations of joy upon which our Christian life, our joyful Christian life is built. Father, we're, we want this. We, we want to be unshakably joyful people. We want to beware of the things that would interrupt that joy, like false teaching. We also want to understand who we are in Christ. All these things we know come from you, Holy Spirit. So we pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you would impact our being in every way. That we would be dependent upon you, Holy Spirit. That we would be receptive to the word of Christ 
in the scriptures. Father, continue to draw us to Christ. Holy Spirit, continue to build us up in the faith. Continue to reveal the truths of scripture to our hearts. Keep us from tripping up. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. And I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are all three, one, faithful to us. Amen.